You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy. In the summer of 1976, Elizabeth Plunkett was 23 years old. As recounted in an episode of the TV3 documentary show Crimes That Shook Ireland, Elizabeth worked as a foreign currency clerk at a banknote printing company called Delarue in Dublin City. She and her family were from Ring's End. Elizabeth was a happy young woman living her life to the fullest, and by August of that year, she had just returned from a holiday of a lifetime. She and her best friend, Mella Bush, had saved and saved for the sun holiday at the stylish beach resort town of Saint-Tropez in France. On Saturday, the 28th of August, 1976, Elizabeth and her friends decided to make use of another friend's holiday caravan in British Bay in Wicklow. Author Stephen Ray wrote about that night in his book Killers, Murders in Ireland. The seaside town was only about an hour's drive from their homes in Dublin, and Elizabeth arrived with her boyfriend, Damien Bush, and his sister and Elizabeth's friend and colleague, Mella Bush, and two other friends. They arrived in Wicklow at about nine that night, but when they got to the caravan, they realised they'd forgotten to bring the key with them. Damien Bush left the four others at McDaniel's pub, still in a merry holiday mood, despite the hiccup in their plans, and went to ring the owner of the caravan, Iris Turner, up in Dublin. When he returned to the pub, there was a pint waiting for him, and he brought the good news that Iris was on her way. She'd agreed to drive down and drop off the key. But just after things seemed to finally work themselves out, and the holiday weekend was about to kick off, Damien and another man in the group started talking about the sale of a car. The lads started to argue, and Elizabeth got annoyed. She told them to drop the subject until the weekend was over. Everyone was there to enjoy themselves, and no one wanted to hear about the car. But the argument carried on. It hadn't been dropped by the time Iris arrived with the key for the caravan, and Elizabeth announced that if the two didn't stop, she was going home. And then, in the packed pub, she disappeared. She'd gotten up from the table and walked off, but never came back. Elizabeth had followed through with her threat to leave. She started walking away from the pub, in the direction of home. Shortly after she stormed off, a car pulled over next to her. And Elizabeth was never seen alive again. The group of friends got up to leave only ten minutes after Elizabeth had. There was no sign of her in the pub, which had literally hundreds of people in it, packed in for a weekend by the beach. They looked all around the car park and then headed back to the caravan, which was still locked when they turned the key in the door. There was no sign that Elizabeth had been there, and she wasn't anywhere nearby. This immediately felt wrong to Damien, and he jumped into his car 
and drove back to the Plunkett home in Ringsend in Dublin to see if they'd had any word from Elizabeth. But she wasn't there, and she had made no contact with them either. The next morning, Sunday, Damien and his friends joined the Plunkets in a search of the area along the two-and-a-half-mile strand, looking for any sign of the missing woman. A few hours later, after no luck in their search, the Plunkets contacted the local guardie in Wicklow Town to report Elizabeth missing. A search began, but little was found. Police issued a description of Elizabeth to the public. Gardie did receive one interesting call that weekend, though. It related to a report about two men who had been spotted trespassing in the area, in one of the many caravan parks that lined the beach. Detective Garda Joseph Nealon went to check it out and found that there were, indeed, two men at McDaniel's caravan park, and they had lit a small fire in one corner of it. The two men were in their thirties or forties and told Garda Nealon that, despite the fact that one was short and fair and the other was tall and dark, that they were brothers on holiday. They said that they were burning rubbish and they were trying to dry clothes that they had gotten wet the day before and that they were working at a forest down in Fettert, County Tipperary. They gave their names as John and Geoffrey Murphy and an address and phone number. Both of those turned out to be false, but Garda Nealon had taken down detailed descriptions of both men and noted that they were driving an Austin car. He took down its reg plate number too. This would prove significant. The Garda told them that, as they weren't staying at the caravan park, they were trespassing, and asked them to move on. The search for Elizabeth continued and eventually by the 4th of September the search area was widened. It was decided to include a nearby 40-acre woodland, just north of the strand itself. Volunteers gathered to help search the area, and that evening a blue sandal was found near to the entrance of the woods, between its boundary and a clearing that contained an old sandpit. The Plunkett family confirmed that this sandal had belonged to Elizabeth, It was unique. Elizabeth had bought the shoes while she was away just a few weeks before in Saint-Tropez. Another find alongside was a watch, also later identified as having belonged to Elizabeth. Although finally something had been found to indicate where Elizabeth had got to, a solitary shoe and a watch nearby miles from where she was last seen, was not a good sign. The next morning, a Sunday, and now a full week since Elizabeth had disappeared, a call was placed by the Wicklow Gardee to Dublin. The Garda Technical Unit, also known as the Murder Squad, were being called in. Further searches then took place in the woods. It was incredibly overgrown, and so, according to Stephen Ray, members of the Murder Squad hacked their way through the undergrowth looking for any clues as to who had been out in the forest in recent times and any further sign of Elizabeth Plunkett. Very little was found that seemed out of place. One item was a small square of cardboard found a few feet from the roadway. The cardboard had a hole cut into it and a piece of twine put through that. It looked like a label of some sort. On the cardboard, the name Geoffrey Murphy was written in pen. The name of one of the men 
that had been found burning clothing in a caravan park the day after Elizabeth had gone missing. The only other find was also quite unusual. Retired detective Tom Connolly describes in his book his recollection of finding a pair of size 6 men's boots in the woods. They'd been repaired at the heel with a steel plate, but this was held to the sole by brass pins, which was very unusual. Both items were held as possible evidence in the ongoing missing persons case. But then, the trail went cold. A few weeks later, on Wednesday the 22nd of September, 1976, Mary Duffy went to work in Castlebar, County Mayo. According to author Stephen Ray, she was one of seven children and lived with her elderly parents on their farm in Belcara. That morning, she and her younger sister, 21-year-old Christina, had gotten a lift into Castlebar with a neighbour to head into their jobs. Mary was a hard worker. She had two positions in the town. During the day, she worked at a shop in the town and then, in the evening, she'd head to a nearby cafe where she worked as a cook. Most days, she started around nine in the morning and finished after eleven. She spent nearly the whole day standing, despite the fact she had back problems caused by spinal issues she'd had from birth. But she was motivated. Mary wanted to save up enough money to emigrate to the United States, where she knew she'd be able to have a better quality of life, despite having left school at only 14. That Wednesday, Mary wasn't feeling great. She'd had a persistent sore throat, but she took some pain pills and carried on with her day. She left work as usual just after 11pm and walked to a telephone box near to the cafe. She rang a garage nearby that her brother Michael worked at. She wanted to know if he'd be able to give her a lift home, but the call wouldn't go through. So she walked a little further away and tried ringing the garage from yet another phone kiosk, near to the train station in Castlebar. A young brother and sister were using the phone when she arrived, and they remembered seeing her when they hung up at around a quarter past eleven. They held the door open for her as they left. This time, Mary got through to her brother's workplace, but Michael wasn't there. She spoke to the owner, who said he'd pass on a message when he returned that Mary was looking for a lift, and that she had started the walk home. When Michael Duffy didn't pass her on the road that night, and Mary didn't return home, her family assumed she'd decided to stay in the town that night, and that she'd gone straight to work again in the morning. But Mary wasn't expected in work on Thursday morning, so no one in the shop realised that she was missing, and her family thought that she was in work. The alarm wasn't raised until Thursday evening that Mary Duffy was missing. It was then that people realised she'd been gone more than 12 hours, and that she seemed to have vanished without a trace. Her family had called friends to see if they could locate her, but they couldn't, and so at a quarter to midnight, Christina Mary's younger sister rang the local guardie to report Mary missing. On Friday the 24th, guardie went house to house in Castle Bar, asking the residents who lived along the route Mary would have taken home two nights before if they may have heard or seen anything relevant to the search for the missing woman. Gardie were told by a number of people that they had heard screaming that Wednesday night but that at the time, they thought that it had been young people messing around on their way homes. 
In the episode of Crimes That Shook Ireland, local man Podrick Lyons lived in Lakeshore Drive with his wife in 1976. The night of the 22nd of September, he heard screams. He'd been out in the pub that evening, watching, of all things, Roots. He told Gardy that he had left the pub at about 11.15 and that just after he had arrived home, he heard screaming outside. What struck him initially as the sounds of a young woman in distress. Mary, his wife, went to the front door and saw a car pulling away from outside the house. It was an incident that they both brushed off as insignificant until they heard that Mary Duffy was missing. When they got the news that Friday, they went straight to the Gardee to report what they'd heard and seen. Another local man who had information of interest to the Gardee at the time appeared in that TV3 documentary. Cyril Killeen, who lived in the area in Castle Bar, recalled how that night he had come home late that evening after going to the cinema in Westport with his mother and girlfriend. When he pulled into his drive, he found that there was an unfamiliar car parked alongside it. He took note of its reg plate and that there were two men in it. Thirty minutes later, he left the house again to drop his girlfriend home, and the car was gone. During the course of door-to-door inquiries, Cyril was questioned by the guardie and, as a sort of afterthought, told the guardie what had happened. He had no idea how relevant the information would prove. Gardie were also contacted by a shopkeeper in nearby Mam, who was concerned by two men who had called into his shop for petrol on the evening of the 22nd. They were travelling in a Ford Cortina with a Dublin registration plate. The car had been painted black, but it had obviously been done at home and not professionally. There were brush strokes visible and it wasn't proper car paint that had been used. The shopkeeper reported that the passenger in the car had gotten out, leaving the driver looking over a map, and had asked the shopkeeper for three pounds worth of petrol. The shopkeeper noticed that the man had an English accent, rather than the Dublin one he was expecting from the reg plate. The shop owner tried to get talking to the man, but his attempts at conversation were deflected. The petrol was paid for in three pound notes, and then the men drove off north, in the direction of Lenon. Something about the encounter didn't sit right with the shopkeeper, and he took down the reg plate. The man even considered ringing the guardie about the strange Englishman, but they hadn't actually done anything wrong, and he didn't want to be thought of as silly, so he left it. When the local realised he'd read about two Englishmen wanted for questioning in relation to the woman in Wicklow who had gone missing just a few weeks before, he changed his mind and rang the police. Gardy and Wicklow were notified that there was a case of another missing young woman ongoing, clear across the country in County Mayo, and that two Englishmen had been seen relatively nearby, about an hour's drive south. The description of the two men found in the caravan park in British Bay was passed on to Gardaí and Castle Bar. A nationwide alert was issued to Garda stations throughout the Republic to be on the lookout for a black Ford bearing the registration plate SZH562. Gardaí and Wicklow had been busy following up on the few leads that they had from British Bay. They'd followed up on the sightings of the two men burning rubbish and more importantly, their car, and went to Fetter's County Tipperary. 
That car was registered to a Mr. Frank Walsh, who lived in the town. He told Gardy that the Austin had been loaned out to two Englishmen, who were staying with an acquaintance of his, Cliff Outram. And so Gardy, working Elizabeth's disappearance, visited Outram's home to question him about the whereabouts of his guests, the so-called Murphy brothers. Outram informed Gardy that the men staying with him were in fact John Shaw and Geoffrey Evans, and he said he'd last seen them when he dropped them to Limerick on the 10th of September. Outram also confirmed that the boots found in Castle Time and Woods belonged to Geoffrey Evans. But since he dropped the two men off, Outram said he had no idea where they'd been, or what they'd been up to, or where they were now. Meanwhile, to the north, the search for any sign of Mary Duffy had continued, and on the 26th of September, Gardie discovered broken pieces of dental work and fillings lying on the road near to the train station, where Mary was likely to have last been. The denture pieces were fitted together and shown to the Duffy family, who confirmed that the set had belonged to Mary. It seemed likely that something terrible had happened in Castle Bar, too. Gardy were at that point on high alert. Two women were missing, presumed dead, and both seemed linked to mysterious men with English accents, travelling in a shoddily painted car. At a quarter to midnight on the night of the 26th of September, two Gardy spotted the oddly painted car parked alongside the promenade in Salt Hill, an area adjacent to Galway City, about an hour and a half drive south of Castle Bar. According to the driver of the patrol car, Garda Boland, who was interviewed for the Crimes That Shook Ireland documentary, there was a disco on in the Ocean Wave Hotel that night on the 26th. It was one of the very few places where a nightclub of sorts ran in that area at that time. There were a lot of young people around. Presumably it was a perfect location if you happened to be out at night looking for a solitary young woman to abduct. Boland and his partner Corcoran checked the license plate against the bulletin that had been issued to Gardy nationwide, and it matched. Gardy across the country were by this stage very aware that there were two men at large. As they sat in the patrol car, realizing they'd possibly come across the most wanted men in the country at that point, Boland and Corcoran decided not to contact Salt Hill Station because they knew that the local kids were able to listen into the communications to that station on their walkie-talkies. Instead, they contacted Galway Station on a more secure radio system, but it was further away. They parked the patrol car in an inconspicuous spot close to where the Ford Cortina was stopped, and Garda Corcoran jumped out of the car and ran the short distance back to Salt Hill Garda Station. They needed to alert officers who were more close at hand. While he was waiting for backup to arrive, Garda Boland saw two men return to their car, one tall and one short, one dark and the other fair. Just as the men turned the engine over and flicked on the lights of the Ford Cortina, officers from the city radioed through to tell him that they were at Salt Hill Station. He told his colleagues to hurry up and get there before the men left. 
Then Boland drove his own car from its hiding spot in the laneway, blocked the Cortina's path, and jumped out of his patrol car, pulling the man from behind the wheel of the black car. Just then, backup from Galway arrived and grabbed hold of the other man before he could make an escape. The pair of Englishmen were patted down for weapons before being loaded into a Garda car. When asked their names, the two responded that they were Roy Hall and David Ball. Of course, these were false identities. They were then brought to Galway Garda Station for questioning. During searches of the men's personal belongings at the Garda Station, a receipt for the purchase of a caravan at Barna House Caravan Park for £380 was found. The murder squad was notified that the men had been located and brought in, and so they spent the night of the 26th and the early morning of the 27th of September making the long journey from Dublin to Galway. It was established that the two men in custody were actually John Shaw and Geoffrey Evans, rather than the false identities the men had initially given the Gardee. Both refused to talk, despite the efforts of Gardee, who wanted to know the whereabouts of Mary Duffy, as they thought that she still had a chance of being alive. The men would say nothing, though, and so were placed in cells overnight, after being informed that they were being arrested on suspicion of being in possession of a stolen vehicle. John Shaw was born in 1944 in Wigan. He came from a family of coal miners and had worked in the mines himself for a time, but it's fair to say that Shaw made his career in the world of criminality. Between the ages of 14 and 30, he accumulated 23 convictions in Britain, mostly relating to burglary and theft. However, in 1971, he received a seven and a half year sentence for attempted rape at Liverpool Crown Court, and a number of years earlier he was convicted of indecently assaulting a young boy in Wigan. Geoffrey Evans was born in 1942 in Tidsley in northern England. Like Shaw, he also racked up a number of convictions through his teens and twenties, 36 to be exact, up until he hit the age of 33. In 1975, Shaw and Evans left England, with Shaw leaving behind a wife and three children, as well as his extensive criminal records, and they arrived in Ireland. However, both of them left with the knowledge that they were wanted by British police for questioning, in connection to three sexual assaults in the Manchester area, with the victim of one of those attacks purportedly the daughter of a high-ranking police officer. But with all that out of the way and with them out of the jurisdiction, Evans and Shaw immediately set about burglaring houses together and found themselves before the circuit court in Cork on the 5th of February. Each were found guilty and sentenced to two years in prison on the basis of only one of the 16 counts they were charged with. That was how they had found themselves in Ireland and how, when they both finished their time in Cork and Mountjoy prisons, They had met up again in Fettered, at the home of Cliff Outram, where their rampage of burglary, rape and murder had begun again. The morning after they were picked up for questioning, Shaw got the attention of one of the officers and asked him if he could go to the toilet. He was told to use the one in his cell, but he told the Garda that it was broken and so he was led to a bathroom elsewhere in the station. While alone in there, Shaw managed to crawl through a tiny window in the small room, measuring just 26 inches by 16. 
Thankfully, though, the Garda immediately saw what was happening and raised the alarm. Gurdy, outside the station, also saw their detainees break for freedom and gave chase. According to Stephen Ray in his book, Shaw had managed to get about 200 yards from the window before he was tackled to the ground by a number of Gardi. He'd decided to put up a fight this time, and there was quite a struggle to get him to give up his escape attempt and bring him back to the station to be questioned further. Both men were questioned separately and extensively that day in the hopes that Mary Duffy might be found and brought home, but neither men would admit that they had done anything wrong. During Evans' questioning, he was asked to account for his and Shaw's movements after they had borrowed Frank Walsh's Austin car. Evans told Gardee that he and Shaw had gone to Dublin and that after collecting his suitcases, they drove to Dunleary. He said that that night they had both slept in the car and in the morning they travelled south to British Bay. After that, they'd gone to Arklow where they stayed on Saturday night and then they'd returned back to British Bay on Sunday. Evans was adamant that he and Shaw had not been in British Bay on Saturday, the day that Elizabeth Plunkett was abducted. He said he couldn't account for the sightings of their car. Evans did eventually slip up, though. Gardee brought up the strange pair of black boots to him. Evans said that he had left a pair of boots in Outram's and described them in detail, size six with repair on the heel, held to the shoe by brass screws. Gardee informed Evans that they had in fact found those boots, but they weren't in Cliff Outram's house. Rather, they were in the woods out by British Bay. Eventually, Evans changed his story, admitting that he and Shaw had been in McDaniel's pub on that Saturday night, the night that Elizabeth went missing. But during questioning, both continued to deny any involvement in the disappearance of either women. Hours of questioning went by, and though the men engaged with the guardian spoke to them, neither gave any information about the women. After a full day of interrogation, both men were returned to their cells, leaving just one junior member of the murder squad in place to keep an eye on them while the other detectives regrouped and rested. He was left to try and get his bit of sleep in a hard chair in the station. Needless to say, Detective Garda Jerry O'Carroll couldn't sleep that night in the station, and he noticed that Shaw wasn't sleeping either. Author Stephen Ray describes how the lone Garda decided to make use of his time by taking a different approach with Shaw than the questioning that had happened throughout the day. And he asked Shaw if he wanted to have a game of billiards with him in the station. Shaw agreed. Then Detective O'Carroll decided he would try and prick Shaw's conscience and began talking about how awful this ordeal was for Mary Duffy and Elizabeth Plunkett's families and how traumatic it must be to not know what had happened to their daughters and sisters. Playing into the Catholic faith that Shaw had claimed, Detective O'Carroll asked the suspect to join him in saying a decade of the rosary for the families, and got to his knees. And with that, Shaw broke. He began to tell this junior detective what had happened to the missing women. After their arrests in Ireland in 1975, there had been extradition proceedings issued to get Shaw and Evans back to England to face the charges of sexual assault there. But given that this was the mid-70s in Ireland, extradition to the UK from the Republic 
was no easy feat. Police in Britain had fingerprint evidence, but this wasn't enough for the court in Dublin, and the extradition was denied. So rather than find themselves on a boat back home to face charges there, Shaw and Evans were both released from their prison sentences for the burglaries in Cork and Tipperary by the end of August 1976, and they each made their way to Fettert, Tipperary. The two had made arrangements to meet at an acquaintance's house there, another Englishman, Cliff Outram, who had been in prison with them. Within two days of their arrival in Tipperary, they borrowed a car from another man in Fettert, named Frank Walsh. Evans and Shaw then drove up to Dublin in their little borrowed Austin to collect some of Evans' belongings that he'd stored while away. They had a few drinks while in Dublin and decided to head back south that evening. They drove through Dublin and into Wicklow and turned to the east towards British Bay. They decided to look for a girl. Shaw got out of the car and began walking along the road so as to make it easier for Evans to convince a girl to take a ride with him. One man looked less menacing than two, they reckoned. It wasn't long before the slim figure of Elizabeth Plunkett was spotted by Evans, and when he asked her where she was headed to, he told her he too was headed to Dublin. Elizabeth got into the car, and just a few minutes later, the Englishman pulled the car over and picked up his friend. When the Austin A40 reached the entrance to Castle Tymon Woods, only a few minutes' drive from where Elizabeth had been picked up, Evans pulled to a stop, and then the men attacked Elizabeth. They rained blows down on her and dragged her into the front seat of the car, and when she started to scream, they stuffed tissue paper into her mouth. Elizabeth was an athletic girl, and she tried to fight her attackers off, but she was outnumbered and outweighed, and Shaw and Evans were determined. They had set out to find a woman to attack, and they'd found one. They beat her and tied her hands behind her back before dragging her out of the car and into the woods. There was a clearing by the old sandpit, far enough away from the road where they wouldn't be observed. Evans and Shaw raped Elizabeth Plunkett repeatedly. They realised that the car parked at the entrance to the woods might look suspicious, especially if Elizabeth's friends had noticed she was gone, and so Evans told Shaw to go and move it. John Shaw took the car and drove it to a pub on the main road and left it in the car park. He was gone for a few hours. The attack continued on through the night, even through a heavy rain shower. Eventually, Evans told Shaw to kill Elizabeth and in the early hours of the 27th of August, Shaw used a shirt sleeve to strangle the girl to death. The two men decided that they would dispose of Elizabeth's body in the Irish Sea, but they would wait for the cover of darkness once more to carry out this plan. Instead, while they were waiting, they headed back towards the caravan parks and broke into a number of the mobile homes there, taking anything of value. They took any cash they found as well as larger items like a portable TV and a record player. They also took a tent and two sleeping bags. Late that night, they returned to the clearing at the sandpit in the woods and brought the body of Elizabeth Plunkett back to the car. Evans and Shaw put her into the boot and drove back to a caravan park where they had seen a number of small rowboats pulled up onto the beach. They stole a lawnmower out of a shed and loaded it and Elizabeth into a rowboat and set out into the Irish Sea.
They tied a loop of stolen washing line around Elizabeth's waist and then tied the other end to the heavy mower. Evans and Shaw wrestled both the body and the metal push mower overboard and watched to make sure both sank in the water before rowing back to shore and abandoning the little boat a few miles from where they had stolen it. They stayed in the British Bay area the next day until they were questioned by Gardee when they left Wicklow and returned to the home of their friend, Cliff Outram. They returned the light-coloured Austin they'd been driving and borrowed another car from the other Englishman. Evans and Shaw then set out on a cross-country burglary spree. They travelled back and forth across the southeast, breaking into a number of homes. While visiting friends in Cork City, they stole the licence plates of an old Ford that had been left abandoned in the city. But it was soon time to move on from the area, given how active they had been there. Before they left, though, they broke into one more house in Cashel, Tipperary. According to author Stephen Ray, this break-in was a veritable jackpot for the two men. There were three handbags sitting on a table in the house, each with large amounts of cash. They made off with close to £500 and nearly managed to steal the family car too, but someone in the house had heard them and a light flicked on inside, and so the two made off with what they had. On the 10th of September, their friend Outram dropped Shaw and Evans to Limerick. They managed to hitch a lift north to Athlone and then on west to Galway. With the money they had stolen from Cashel, they bought a mobile home at a caravan park in Barna, the village just a few minutes' drive from Galway city centre. Soon Connemara was riddled with burglaries. Shaw and Evans robbed homes and businesses and also stole a green Ford Cortina from outside a garage in Clifton. They fitted it with new stolen tyres and the licence plate they'd taken in Cork. In fact, they returned to Cork briefly with the car, and while there they went to a local Dunn stores and bought some paint, and brushed the entire car with it. It was a bad paint job. But they were no longer driving a stolen green Ford Cortina with stolen plates. They now had a black one, sort of. From Cork, they headed to Wexford and broke into a number of caravans at Castletown. And then from there, they headed back to Tipperary, to Clonmel, where they applied for and were given provisional driving licenses in the names of Roy Hall and David Ball. The two men then headed back to Galway. They were spotted by the shopkeeper in Mam on the evening of the 22nd of September. He thought that the two strange men in the strangely painted car were heading towards Lenon, and they were. Shaw and Evans drove north, but continued on past Lenon and ended up in Castle Bar that night. There, near to the train station, they saw a small, slim young woman walking on her own. When Shaw spotted her, he told Evans to stop the car and he got out. He began walking behind her while Evans drove further up the road and parked the car. Shaw followed Mary, staying a good few yards behind her until she got close to where the car was parked. As she approached it, Shaw rushed up behind her and tackled her to the ground. Mary tried to fight the man off and they ended up struggling in the middle of the road, but Shaw managed to tackle Mary into the back of the car. It was during this fight that she lost some of her dental work. 
Shaw had pushed the young woman into the car just in time to avoid being seen by another passing motorist, and as they drove off, he held Mary in place by pinning her head between his knees. Then they tied her hands behind her back and took turns raping Mary. All the while, they continued to drive south, taking turns at the wheel, too. They drove for an hour and a half back into County Galway, stopping at an old disused railway station near to Ballinahidge Castle. Shaw and Evans found a secluded clearing between the old building and the Ballinahinch River, obscured from the view of passing motorists or fishermen in the dense scrub. The men put up the stolen tent and fed Mary some sleeping tablets that made her easier to manage. Then they took her clothes off her and raped her again. When they were done, they tied Mary to a tree and left her there. The men decided that they needed supplies at that point, and so Evans got back into their car and drove to Barna, leaving Mary tied to the tree. When the sole Englishman got back to the caravan at around 5am on the 23rd of September, he burned Mary's clothes and her handbag. By noon, Evans decided food was needed, and so he went to the shops. At 6pm that evening, curiosity got the better of Evans, and he decided to head to a pub in nearby Spittle to catch the nightly news broadcast. He braced himself to hear news about the abduction of a woman in Castle Bar, but there was no mention of it. Mary had not yet been reported missing. After that, he made the drive back to Ballina Hinch. It was dark when Evans got back to the makeshift campsite. Mary had obviously been beaten more in his absence, and they tried to get her to eat something, but she wasn't able. Then it was Shaw's turn to take a break from what can only be described as inflicting torture upon the poor young woman and went drinking in the nearby seaside village of Roundstone. In his absence, Evans continued the beating and the rapes. It was at some point over that night that the two men decided to kill Mary Duffy. Evans gave Mary some more sedatives to take, and then he got a cushion from the car. He held it over the young woman's face as he strangled her with his own hands. The two men then loaded Mary's body into the boot of the car, and Evans began a short drive along the lakes and waterways found in the foothills of the mountains of the Twelve Bends, and made their way to the picturesque lake of Loch Ina. They drove along until they came to a boathouse on the lake and pulled over. The spot was entirely isolated and utterly deserted in the early hours of the 24th of September. Evans and Shaw carried Mary's body down the steps from the car to the small dock, and then Evans smashed a window in the building to retrieve some oars for one of the boats tied nearby. Then, on the instructions of his accomplice, he gathered up anything that had a bit of weight to it and put those in the boat alongside Mary. There were two bricks, a sledgehammer, and a small anchor. All were tied to Mary, and then Evans and Shaw rowed out and dumped her into the lake. They rowed back to the shore and ended up pulling the boat in a good ways from the boathouse, so they had to walk back to the car. Evans and Shaw then headed back to their campsite at Ballina Hinch and packed up their sleeping bags in the tent. Shaw's jumper was covered in blood, so he had to take it off, and it was bundled with Mary's clothes 
and then burned on the spot. They decided to drive back to the lake and return the boat to its original moorings, so that no one would suspect it had been used. On the way there, they stopped off periodically and dumped their camping gear piece by piece into the streams and lakes commonly found in that part of Galway. Once the boat was returned to its proper position outside the boathouse on the lock, the shoddily painted ford turned back and headed to Barna, where the men had established their base at the caravan park. They arrived there at around 11am on the 24th. After laying low for what amounted to only a handful of hours, Evans and Shaw were back in their car, driving around Galway City and the adjacent area of Salt Hill. On the 26th of September, they spent that evening looking for another young woman to grab. There were a number of girls that were walking alone that evening, but Evans was particular, saying he wanted a quote-unquote small bird, someone who was slim and slight, like Elizabeth and Mary had been. That's what the pair were doing when Gardie from Salt Hill spotted the suspicious car sitting by the promenade that night, leading to their arrest. Once the story of what had happened to the women had been got from Shaw, that information was brought to Evans, and he too confessed to their murderous cross-country trip. The following day, the 28th of September, Shaw was brought back up to Loch Ina to show Gardy where he and his accomplice had dumped Mary Duffy's body. He had told the Gardy he wanted to cooperate fully with them, and was very willing to point out the various places where things had happened. Gardy wanted not just to corroborate his story, but also to try and confirm that Mary Duffy had in fact been killed, and hadn't been left out in the wilderness to die. Shaw showed Gardy where he had thrown two rings the men had taken from Mary Duffy's body after he had killed her, which were subsequently found during the course of Garda searches of the area, as well as the clearing in Ballina Hinch, where the two men had held her captive. There, the Gardi found the remains of their campsite. There was a plastic ground sheet found, and after being examined, a palm print was found on it. This was later matched to the palm of Mary Duffy. Shaw pointed out all the relevant places to the Gardi. After he'd taken them on a tour of Connemara, showing the Gardi everywhere he and Evans had stopped, Shaw was brought down to Wicklow as well, and identified the places involved there too. As soon as the story was got from Shaw, Gardy in Wicklow, working on the Elizabeth Plunkett disappearance, were contacted. Officers were dispatched to British Bay to search for her body. However, that search didn't last long, as Elizabeth's body had actually washed ashore in the tide 65 miles away, on the southern coast, at Duncormick, in County Wexford. Two weeks later, after an extensive and painstaking search, civilian divers drafted in to help by the Gardaí recovered the body of Mary Duffy from Loch Ina. She had become caught up in the rocks and a small cave on the lake bottom, 25 feet below the surface. On the 29th of September 1976, John Shaw and Geoffrey Evans appeared in the district court in Wicklow, now charged with false imprisonment rape and the murders of Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy.
It was decided that the two men would be tried separately, and so John Shaw found himself in front of the Central Criminal Court in July of 1977. But the trial was to be anything but straightforward. The trial proper was halted for a so-called trial within a trial to establish what evidence gathered by the Gardee during the course of their investigation would be admissible and therefore heard by the jury. Shaw's defence raised two important matters. First, they argued that there was no warrant issued to search the caravan in Barna, and anything found there was therefore inadmissible. Secondly, and most crucially, Shaw had initially been detained in relation to the theft of a car, not rape, false imprisonment or murder, meaning that he was being unlawfully detained at the time of the statements made by him, confessing to those crimes, and when he showed the guardie the locations involved, despite having been cautioned. On top of that, he had not been brought before a court at the earliest opportunity to be charged as was proper. The argument basically boiled down to an allegation that the guardie had infringed upon Shaw's constitutional rights and that the evidence gathered due to that should be thrown out. The trial judge, Mr Justice McWilliam, agreed with the defence during this hearing and therefore refused to allow Shaw's statements to be admitted during the trial. Senior counsel for the state, John Lovett Dolan, had his work cut out for him without this evidence. He was relying solely on circumstantial evidence and this was tenuous at best. In his closing statement, he asserted that, quote, an extraordinary chain of coincidences, end quote, proved that Shaw had committed the murders. Meanwhile, Shaw's defence barrister, Rex Mackey Senior Counsel, rebutted with the question, quote, have the jurors ever heard such nonsense, end quote. The state had presented nothing more than conjecture, and much more was needed to convict, he said. When it came time for the jury to deliberate, Without the benefit of hearing the evidence of Shaw's own confession to the crimes, the twelve men failed to agree upon a verdict. This result, though, what's often referred to as a hung jury, meant that all was not lost for the Director of Public Prosecutions, an office that at that stage had only taken over from the role of the Attorney General three years before. Because the trial had ended without a verdict, they could have another go of it. John Shaw would face a second trial, and Jeffrey Evans would remain in custody until that proceeding was over. Mr Justice Declan Costello presided over Shaw's second trial, which took place in January and February of 1978. Again, a voir dire hearing took place to establish what would be admitted as evidence by the prosecution. This hearing went differently to the one before, though. Hair evidence was disallowed, as it had been gathered by a member of the Gardee instead of a doctor, breaching Shaw's constitutional rights to bodily integrity. But more critically, the statements made by Shaw while in unlawful custody were allowed to be put before the jury at this time. Justice Costello decided that while the act of detaining the defendant amounted to an illegal act and a breach of his constitutional rights, the violation was not a conscious and deliberate violation in the circumstances. Furthermore, he said, even if it was a deliberate and conscious violation, 
he ruled that the statements could be admitted due to the extraordinary circumstances in the case. The Gardee were trying to find Mary Duffy alive. The evidence would be heard, and this time, Shaw was found guilty. On the 9th of February 1978, Shaw was sentenced to life for the murder of Mary Duffy. He also received 14 years for the charge of rape and a further two years for false imprisonment. During the course of his trial, on instructions from the judge, Evans was found not guilty of the murder of Elizabeth Plunkett because the statements he had made regarding her murder could not be considered potentially life-saving, as had been the case with Mary Duffy. By the end of 1978, following the resolution of criminal proceedings against John Shaw, Jeffrey Evans faced his own trial. On the 8th of December, he was sentenced to life for the murder of Mary Duffy, and then, on the 20th of that month, that was followed by a further 20-year sentence for the rape of both women. Both men appealed their sentences, saying that the statements that their convictions had been based upon were given during the course of a detainment that was unconstitutional. Gardy had certain allotments of time that they were allowed to detain people for, and in their case, this time had run out by the time Evans and Shaw made their statements. Those statements, they argued, were therefore the fruit of the poisonous tree and inadmissible in court. Without them, their convictions were unsafe and they should all be thrown out. In addition, when they were first brought in for questioning, they were being held in relation to being in possession of a stolen car. At that point, Gardy had no evidence of anything further. Those were the charges that they had been arrested for up until they were brought before the district court in Wicklow, three days later. It was not possible at that time to detain someone for the purposes of questioning or have them quote-unquote assist Gardy with their inquiries. The appeal made it all the way to the Supreme Court and has set precedent for aspects of police procedure. On the 17th of December 1980, five Supreme Court justices decided that the applicants' rights, which were infringed in this case, had to be weighted against the right to life, in this case of Mary Duffy. Gardy acted as they had because they thought that there was a chance that Mary was still alive and they needed information to try and locate her. This outweighed Evan and Shaw's rights to due process and liberty. Jeffrey Evans died at the age of 68 in 2012 in a nursing home in Dublin after a long illness that had resulted in a three-year coma. He was never released from prison. John Shaw today remains in prison in Arbor Hill and is the longest-serving prisoner in the state. He is now 73 and has appeared before the parole board a number of times. The Irish Times reports that, in June of 2016, a risk assessment of Shaw was completed that found he had a high level of risk of reoffending, and went on to state that Shaw demonstrated, quote, poor problem-solving skills, negative emotionality, deviant sexual preference, hostility towards women, general social rejection, and a lack of concern for others, end quote. The parole board recommended later that year that he be allowed two days of supervised release yearly, but the Minister for Justice at that time overruled this decision. Shaw and his legal team are currently appealing for temporary release to be granted. Following Jeffrey Evans' death in 2012, 
retired Detective Garda Jerry O'Carroll, who had elicited the confession from Shaw with a friendly game of billiards and a suggestion to say the rosary, spoke to radio host Joe Duffy on Radio One's Liveline program. He recounted his involvement in the investigation and his interactions with Shaw and Evans. Thirty-six years on from the crimes committed by the two men, he told the story of the deaths of Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy, and the horrors that they had endured. Most chillingly, O'Carroll recalled that while driving Shaw to the locations of the crimes, Shaw had confided in the young Garda that he was relieved. Shaw had said, quote, I'm glad you got me. We were going to kill one a week. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Lou, Martin and Prudence, Brian McNulty, Philippa Duthry, Sarah Duffy and the excellent podcast Beyond Contempt. Your support means the absolute world to me and I appreciate it so much. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes as well as bonus content up to twice a month and nifty merch. I hope you'll check it out. Also, a huge thank you to this week's sponsor, HelloFresh. Remember to head to hellofresh.co.uk and enter the code MENSREA at checkout to get £60 off. Supporting our sponsors also supports this show and keeps the episodes coming. So if you want to help me out and feed yourself delicious homemade dinners, go get yourself a sweet discount. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Evans and Shaw immediately set about burgling how immediately set about burgling houses. Burglaring. Burgling. Burglaring. Burgling. Burgling.